Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to meet with you and we'll be meeting in this way at least this week and we'll find out what uh, the New South Wales government has to say about next week. But we'll be in contact with you via email and hopefully be seeing you in person. It's just not the same with you, without you around. So uh, yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your presence, for your peace, that wherever we are and however we've come to this place, uh, you are with us because you are faithful. You are the God who um, sent Jesus to seek and to save the lost, just like that shepherd would leave the 99 to go after the one. You come after us, not to destroy your people, but to redeem your beloved, to lift us up, to bring us back into fellowship with yourself, to correct us, to guide us as a father, a son in whom he delights. Thank you, Lord, that you delight in us and that you have great wisdom for us. And I pray that we would, as we're filled with your spirit, be attentive and meekly receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of blessings from God, what comes to mind? I think many of the blessings that we value most tend to be temporal. Things like health, jobs, wealth, the ability to, to do things, to go on holidays, property, possessions. But the true riches of God's kingdom, they transcend time. They will endure when this world and the things of it pass away. Things like his presence, his wisdom, his word, his love, forgiveness, adoption as his children, eternal life that we have a place with him forever in heaven. And sometimes we think it would be a, a great blessing for God to end a temptation. Or we're facing temptation and we know that we're weak. And so we say, I'd be so blessed if that temptation would just be, be over. My appetite for it, my desire for it, for that sin would be, be done. But James 1.12, it tells us that enduring temptation and remaining upright is an unexpected source of divine blessing. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. A wise person does recognize an area of sin or weakness to avoid, but that same person is blessed by enduring the trial, by enduring the temptation, when they're tempted to quit or to charge God with wrong. I'm convinced that one of the biggest hindrances we have to receiving the blessing from God is us. It is our choices to pursue sin. And it's not our little faith that's the problem, but our unbelief. Blessed is the man, uh, Psalms 1 says, that uh, rejects the counsel in godly, does not stand with sinners or sit with the seat of the scornful, but delights in the Lord, in his word, walking in his wisdom. And all the blessings from God we receive are by his grace. We cannot earn them, but we can receive them when we humble ourselves in faith. And that's sin. Sin will hinder us from receiving the benefits and blessings that God has, even in temptation. Let's pick up our uh, passage in James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The word tempted here, it's an enticement to do evil. James went from using temptation as a noun, where he's talking about trials and difficulties, something that is a temptation, to being tempted, to a verb, uh, which is an, uh, an action. Jesus, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but he remained without sin. God uses temptation to test us, to examine us, and we can see ourselves whether we're following God or not, whether we remain upright or if we choose to give in to the desires of the flesh. Uh, But it would be incorrect to ever think that God ever tempts us to do evil, that he's the one who's enticing us because God is good. He never for a moment finds sin appealing. There's not a part of him that's like, well, if I wasn't God, if people weren't, uh, if I hadn't said these things, I would be apt to do that. No, he is righteous. He's altogether good. From the moment sin entered the world, however, man has sought to blame others, especially God, for his own decision to choose sin. Think about Adam when God confronted him after sinning by eating of the forbidden fruit, he said, the woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. God, this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't given me this woman. But Eve, she she didn't do any better when she was confronted. She blamed the serpent who tricked her into eating from the tree. Any excuse, any justification we make for our sin ultimately accuses God of doing wrong, of being evil. The one who created fruit, the one who made serpents, who, the one who put them in the garden, the one who set the boundary for what was right or wrong. It's not God or even Satan that deserves blame for our sin. Verse 14, it says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So sin, the, the, the desires in us, they draw us away from God by the enticement of sin. It's like our own wickedness draws us away from God. Last year, I visited a reserve and there was a sign. I have a picture for you. Sign near the car park. It said, beware, do not tempt thieves. Do not leave valuables in your car. Lock your car. And I got to say, I was not filled with confidence to park my car there and to walk away. Um, It's like, if you left valuables in your car and they were stolen, it's your fault, honest, law-abiding citizen. Uh, God already said, thou shall not steal. But the fact is, there are thieves out there. There are people who, if given the opportunity, will take something that doesn't belong to them and keep it. So the responsibility in that car park, it fell to the responsible person to not tempt a thief. Um... So there's those sunglasses there. There's the laptop. That combined with opportunity, it conceives sin when it's acted out upon. It's just like a a man and a woman who join together physically to make a baby. There's a definite act that must take place on the part of both the man and the woman to conceive that child. And when we act out on our sinful desire or our thoughts or our deeds, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to or brings forth death every time. Sin is never barren. Sin is never without bitter fruit. It's like every time you stole, every time you lusted, every time you lied and felt like no one knew or you got away with it, 
Sin has been sired and birthed by you. Have you seen those television shows where the, the unsuspecting man finds out by a DNA test that he is the father of the child? Like, you are the father. Whoa! And he's shocked, right? Well, can you imagine if you were brought into a stadium and it's full of people that look just like you and God said, I hold you personally responsible for all these and the death that they produce because they are your offspring. This is the result of your sin. It would be overwhelming. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. God's revealed the human heart has the capacity to understand, but also to be deceived, that it is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Who can know the depths of their own uh, hearts? And the insidious nature of deception is that you don't realize that you're deceived, and thus the deceived can become a deceiver. We need to settle once and for all our personal responsibility for sin. Not just lamenting temptation, like, oh, if that temptation wasn't there, I'd be fine. Or feeling guilty that you've given in to temptation. But to repent, to recognize we have sinned. It is completely my fault. It's not the fact that they left those sunnies in the car that I'm a thief. It's because it's a desire in me to steal. The problem's in me, and I must repent of that. And then to do what God says, because I trust and fear him. Instead of blaming God for allowing temptation, we ought to realize that with every temptation, he makes a way of escape, and there is a blessing he will give those who hold fast and cling to him. When our sin comes to light like that woman caught in adultery, we ought to repent and sin no more. Picking up in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Salvation, forgiveness, redemption. They are gifts we receive by God's grace. We're justified, we're deemed righteous by faith in Jesus. Your, your cleansing from sin, it wasn't earned by your repentance or your efforts to do good. They are gifts that we receive. The fact that God's accepted us, the fact that he loves us and he has given us forgiveness, that's by grace we receive it through faith in Christ. God's always good and always perfect. He's like the sun that's always shining, right? We, the sun is shining, whether it's a cloudy day and we can't see the sun, it still burns. If the, if the sun is on the other side of the earth, it is still shining. The moon is still reflecting the light of the sun. Those stars, they continue to burn, though they be at a distance. In God, there is only light. There is no changing. He doesn't flicker. It's not like partly good, partly bad that he gives us a blessing, but also a temptation. No, he only gives us what's good. All that's good comes from him. And he's immutable. That means he's unsusceptible. He's incapable of changing. He's not wishy-washy. He's not fickle as we can be. He said, let there be light. There was light. He created the heavens, the earth, the plants, the animals, everything that we see. Human beings. 
we're first born naturally by our parents coming together, and then we've been born again as Christians through faith in Christ. It's Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He's given us eternal life according to his will. And this is really great. Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, picking up, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we've, been, we've heard the word of truth. We've heard Jesus, who is the word. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We have assurance of uh, salvation and God's redemption Temptation, man's wicked desire, that brought forth death. It brought forth sin that brings death. But Jesus tasted death so that we might have eternal life through him. So God, he's loving. He's drawn us to himself. He is that everlasting, unchanging rock in our salvation. We build upon him by faith in Christ. And he keeps us from being at the mercy of temptation. Where it's like, if I'm tempted, I know I'm going to give in. Well, we don't have to say that. That doesn't have to be the reality because in Christ we have strength. In him we have wisdom. We can walk in the fear of God. All of our sin, it's been purged. And we now are made righteous by faith. So in light of God and his good gifts, James, he follows on. He says, beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Psalm 711, it says God judges the righteous and he's angry with the wicked every day, but God can be angry without sin. James already has established that people are basically sin factories, that we just produce sin because of our own wicked desires, because of this body of flesh, and we are prone to being deceived while God's not. He's only good and perfect. And it's very difficult for us as human beings to be angry without sin. And it's impossible for us to stay angry without being in sin. There's a tendency in parents uh, to show displeasure with a flash of anger. You know, to, to raise the voice. To make, make a show that this is not on. This is not acceptable. And to be, um, to be angry to make a point that angry parent, does that make a child righteous? Never. Never. Being angry, voicing displeasure, letting off steam or venting, it's never cleansed a soul from sin. It's never delivered anyone from temptation. We want to put the fear of God or really just the fear of us into someone sometimes, but that doesn't change people. It doesn't change who they are. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. When we justify anger for any reason that's abiding, we give place to temptation. The world says, don't get mad, get even. Repress the appearance of being angry. Uh, take vengeance by retaliation. God says the exact opposite. He says, admit you're angry. Never justify sin due to anger. Taking vengeance, that's God's sovereign territory. That's his area. And we're to leave that to him. We can easily transgress through anger. We enter into temptation if we justify wrath or we hold on to grudges towards others. Having received the forgiveness 
and the care of God. Don't just take a breath and count to 10. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. God shows us these qualities by example. Can you imagine if God was not like this all the time? If God didn't listen, if he shouted us down when he wasn't pleased with how we, the choices we made or how we're living, and he was always furious because of the way that we or mankind had wronged him. How vengeful, how awful he would be if he was not good and loving and perfect and gracious and long-suffering towards us. The only reason why we're on this planet is because God is long-suffering to all. So we follow his example in the way that we live, in the way that we deal with conflict and when we've been offended or hurt. James 1, 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you've ever had a child or seen a child grow up, you realize how quickly they can they grow and change. You're like, wow, every week they can do something new. They, they be, their senses are beginning to develop and they can lift their heads. They can begin to balance, tottering around. They, they begin to express themselves and their own desires. A person who's born again, it's like we, having been born, people begin to change from being an embryo to coming outside and living life in the real world. Um, outside the uterus, and now we've been born again, and there are changes that God desires to take place in us. We're new, but we're not perfected. There's still changes we need to embrace and realize that God wants to do in our hearts, in our minds, in the way we express ourselves, in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we process uh, hurts and uh, challenges. We need to follow the example of Jesus. We've grown up hearing, seeing, and feeling things that were not always righteous. Some were sinful. And we need to learn the way to, to honor God in conflict and when we face temptation. Little children, they don't realize how dirty their hands are and that they need to be washed. If you give them food, they'll just start eating. They don't think about, oh, my hands, where have they been? They, they don't realize that. It takes a parent saying, hey, wash your hands, wash your face. That teenager doesn't realize they smell after playing basketball. Imagine that. You were just you know, working out in the yard and you don't notice how you smell, but everyone else can. So you're told, go take a shower. Don't go to, don't go to bed smelling like that, looking like that. And us older folks, we don't notice if we've got greens in our teeth or bad breath or something gross hanging out of our nose and someone's like, hey, you got a little something there. Oh, thanks, thanks for that. I didn't know, right? We, it doesn't matter if you're old or young. We all need to change. We all have issues. And it doesn't matter in your season of life, whether it's the ignorance of youth or you're stubborn in your own ways, there is filthiness. There is an overflow of wickedness from our desires that God wants to clean up. Things that we need to recognize and to lay aside. There are words, there are attitudes, there are actions and motives that reveal sin in our members that need to be repented of and forsaken and and God's not interested in you cleaning up your act. He wants you to quit acting like you're always right. He wants me to quit thinking that, that I know what's the best thing for someone to be doing. 
to meekly receive his word and to walk in it myself rather than judging others. God wants us to humbly yield to him, to his cleansing, his wisdom and guidance. And we're called to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I like what Spurgeon said. He wrote, The word receive is a very instructive gospel word. It is the door through which God's grace enters to us. We are not saved by working, but by receiving. Not by what we give to God, but by what God gives to us. And we receive from him. Jesus compared the, the seed to the seed scattered by the sower to be the good seed of the word of God. The ground broken open by the plow is able to receive that good seed scattered upon it. And we're called to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts to receive God's wisdom and his word. God's grace and love, he's provided the gospel and he guides us in our dealings with others desiring their good and God's glory, that our lives would be fruitful from him, that his goodness would start growing in our lives and bear fruit. God wants more for you than just knowledge of his word or of doctrine, but that you would be fruitful, spiritually fruitful. The plow cuts through the soil. God's word, it cuts to our hearts and it reveals our barrenness. It reveals our spiritual bankruptcy. It shows us how far off the track we are. We learn what a work of the flesh looks like and what the fruit of the spirit looks like and how to to weigh them and to say, well, this is of God because it is in keeping with his nature and his goodness. And that implanted word, it's able to save your souls so it's therefore a godly guide to, to show us the righteous way to live now. Would you agree that knowing what is true doesn't always result in you doing what you know is right? James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, James confronts us with the fact we can be deceived. That we are deceived if we hear God's word and we don't do what we hear. Knowing doesn't guarantee that you're doing it well or at all. True agreement with God's word is more than just like, yes, that's right. Yes, I agree. But it's the aligning of our lives with it in practice. When this sermon is over, it's not over. Because there are still truths in it that I need to put into practice and you need to put into practice. And then our lives are to be preaching the truth of this message of what God has said every day to everyone we meet, whether people are around us or not, because we want to have integrity like God, who is, he is bright and shining. He is always good and glorious. It's good to think about. How does my life translate the truth of the gospel to others? Is the message I agree with mentally being declared by me in reality because I'm following it, because I'm putting it into practice? When you hear a sermon that ministers to you and and this thought comes to mind, like this person would really benefit from hearing that. As good as sending a link to them or, or saying, hey, you should listen to this sermon or series, the best way to minister the truth of God to others is to do it yourself. That is the way to proclaim it, to minister it to your children, to your spouse. Not just saying, I'm going to leave this verse because I want them to change in this way. You change 
because God is changing you to make you meek, to give you humility, to walk in righteousness, and to cease manipulating or trying to, Im- I don't know, weasel your way in to, to change people how you think they should change. You be changed how God wants you to change and how everything changes then in the way we see others. See what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Isn't that amazing that Christians can be an epistle by the Spirit of God that is known and read by men. And Paul says, it's clear that you, are, you have been changed and impacted by the Spirit of God because how you live. It's clear, it's evident, and man, I want that to be true of me. That, that, that's what I would be broadcasting through my life. That's the testimony that people, not the things that I say, but how I live. People would say, oh, clearly, an epistle written by the Spirit of God. And this isn't something to aspire to. This is the reality for someone who is in Christ because of your new identity. You've been born again. You are an epistle. But what message are you sending? One of his love? One of his righteousness? Or that overflow of wickedness? Is your life an accurate representation of Christ? Not just knowing doctrine. There's a similar passage found in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, Paul's words to Timothy. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Paul said there's a right way for Timothy to conduct yourself in the house of God, the body of Christ, the pillar and ground of truth. And there were no shortage of controversial topics in the early church with the influences of pagan Rome and Uh, Political intrigue, you have secular philosophy, religious legalism, a culture that was steeped in sexual immorality and the rise of Gnosticism. I mean, it's not like only in modern day we're dealing with controversial subjects or issues. And there were many people who claimed to have a special revelation from God. Timothy was urged to hold fast to and to promote the divine revelation of Jesus Christ according to sound doctrine, without controversy. So not the controversial stuff, but things that all Jew and Gentile Christians believed. God was manifested in the person of Jesus. And now he can be manifested through your life in the way you deal with those controversial subjects, as you deal with conflicts and temptation, that you don't give in to anger and lashing out because you're offended or hurt. There's never been a shortage of controversial subjects that we can be distracted or divided over. But may our lives be a proclamation of our Savior Jesus by living out His love, His grace, and humility, being long-suffering and kind. And what He says, we're to practice as we follow Him. So the Christian walk is very practical. It's something that's supposed to impact not just our belief of doctrine, 
but the way we speak to our children, in the way we work when our boss is not watching us, in the way that we think about other people who are different than us. James 1.23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. James uses this example of someone looking into a mirror at their reflection. Now, the mirrors we have today, they provide a very good representation of what we actually look like. It could be horrifying. It could be pleasing. Um, But looking at ourselves does nothing to change us. It doesn't change our appearance. It doesn't change our ability to think. Hearing the word of God by itself does nothing to change you. It doesn't change who you are or how you live just because you heard some words being spoken. Observing here, it's not just like you walk by and go, oh, how you looking? Good looking. Nothing like that. It's, it's a careful look. Like looking into every pore of your face, examining every bit of your skin. And this is just an honest representation of what you actually look like, like it or not. God's word, it's like a mirror in that it reveals who we really are in our natural state, that we're lost sinners. We are guilty. We're condemned by iniquity, that we're spiritually dead. We're selfish, wicked, proud, liars, hypocrites, without hope of eternal life, and deserving of God's wrath. That is not a a pretty picture at all. Knowing this is true does not mean that you've received the remedy through the gospel of Christ. A lot of people have been exposed to the true revelation of God's word and have remained unchanged by it because they have not received it. Those believers were called to carefully observe word, God's word, not just to know what it says or what to believe, but how we ought to live, how we must change, how we cannot change by working or by efforts of the flesh, but through faith in Christ, who cleanses us, who changes us. The Bible shows us our natural condition, what we are apart from God and now our new identity, having been born again. Now that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and this is a much better picture, that we, we have received salvation by grace through faith, that we've been washed clean of all sin, that we don't have to remain guilty or feeling condemned about the sins that we've committed because we've been, that sin has been paid for. There's been an atonement. There's been a washing and a cleansing. We've been made new, that we're alive now. We're co-heirs with Christ, that we have rest, perfect peace, and lasting joy in the presence of God forever that doesn't depend upon our circumstances. The one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, that's living in agreement with the reality shown by God, that's the one who will be blessed in all that he and she does. I think it was Guzik who suggested, faith leads to action, not auditing. And this struck me because for a lot of my young Christian life, I say I can totally identify with that uh, being an auditor of sermons and messages and things that I would hear. I was really little more than an auditor of Bible studies. I did not listen to sermons or teachings because I planned to change according to like, all right, 
What's the game plan, God? What do you want me to get from this? How, how should I change today? I would approach it like uh, an accountant who's looking to make sure that all the lines are adding up, looking for mistakes to correct them, not in myself, but in the other person. And the person preaching and the person teaching, it's like I, I felt I was the guardian of truth looking to find faults with what was said rather than seeing the ugliness of my own sin and repenting. My hard heart, it refused to be cut by that sharp plow. And the good seed that was scattered, it, it was not fruitful in my life. So we need to look into God's law of liberty. That's the gospel, the law of freedom. Freedom by faith in Christ. For more than knowing how to just define faith, but with intent to walk by faith, to walk according to God's revelation. Think about how the Jews' lives must have changed when they have been governed by law, written on tablets of stone, having, having this obligation to keep the law and to appear at the feasts and to, to then having a life that's following Christ, who is the Messiah. Like, okay, that the, the law was imperfect because no one could keep it, but now I have the perfect lawgiver. I have Jesus, whom I follow, who is my king and Messiah. And my life is to be marked by obedience to him. Gentiles, they went from being lawless, from doing what was right in their own eyes, to submitting to a savior Christ as his slave because they had been bought with a price and their life was not their own. And the blessings not received by knowing the will of God alone, but by choosing to do it. Jesus uh, expressed this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, um, the wise man hears my words and does them. The foolish man, he hears the word, but he doesn't do it. And so that action, that disobedience leads to a great fall. And so we have to take heed how we build. And are we building on the foundation of Jesus through faith? How perfect is the law of liberty through the gospel of grace? The Bible tells us the truth. The man who believes he's naturally free to do as he wants without restraint is actually in bondage to, to sin and to flesh and to the devil. And we're born enslaved by the curse of sin that brings death. And it's only by being born again through the gospel that you can be truly free. And the one whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. We're free from the guilt of our sin, and we're free to rejoice in the God who has delivered us. Freely we've received the blessings of the gospel, so freely we present ourselves as living, living sacrifices to God, which is our reasonable service. And our liberty is not to do what we want, but to live in accordance to the gospel. We were in chains. We've been set free. We've been given a new life, an eternal life, not just a new chance. No, we have a Savior. We have a God and Father who has given everything for us. And so we're to speak the truth, to forgive others, to rejoice in repentance, to be peacemakers, to demonstrate God's love. James 1, 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. During my life, people in the church have pushed back upon the term religious um, for various reasons. They, they think it gives the wrong impression. 
Christianity is not a religion governed by rules and traditions of men, but it's all about the person of Jesus, about how we have been brought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Every other time the word religion is used, three other times besides this passage in the New Testament, every single time it's talking about Judaism, uh, the religion of the Jews. And James has addressed this letter to the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember early in verse 2, uh, 1 and 2, it would have been read by people who were current uh, or former followers of Judaism, people who were involved in that lifestyle. And the religion of the most strict Pharisee and all the religions in the history of mankind, they proved useless because rules can't change hearts. It couldn't change the people who were trying to follow them. It didn't matter how many sacrifices you offered or prayers you said. If religion, if your religion does not um, result in the ability to hold your tongue to change you, then it's, it's foolish to think it can do anything for your soul. That's the point that's being made here. If your religion doesn't change who you are and consequently how you live and how you speak, it is useless. It's no different than bowing down to a dumb idol that can't hear you or speak or do anything for you, one that you have to carry around and venerate. James explains real religion, it results in the loving sacrifice of others and personal holiness. It will be marked by these things. It's a, it was to value the people of the lowest social ranks and to go to them when they were hurting, to help them when they had no means to repay. And this speaks of more than social programs because secular governments, they can provide such services. But the helping of the vulnerable, the needy, the lonely, that's to be an expression of God's love within us. So when you think about your life, you say, is that in me? Do I have a love for people that I don't even know? Or the people that I know who fit these descriptions, am I doing anything for them? Am I seeking to help them in some way? The religious will do so because they're obligated to under law. A government for the sake of supporting citizens, of giving them their entitlements, they will do that. But a believer is not motivated by those things, but freely out of the love of God, having received his love. Because God loves us freely, his goodness leads us to repentance, the denial of self, the refusal to sin, and purity is not gained by hiding from the world or sequestering ourselves, but by going to those in need, by reaching out, by remaining upright in the way we deal with conflict and temptation. We can remain pure and without spot in this world and walk in love towards others. Please turn as we close to the words of Jesus in John 8. Starting in verse 31, Jesus speaking to Jews who believed him. John chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free... You shall be free indeed. How can believers know that they are Christ's disciples? 
Well, by abiding in his word, by knowing the truth, by being free from bondage to sin. The Jews didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said that they needed to be set free. He inferred, like, you need to be set free. And they're like, hold on, we're not slaves. I don't, we don't really think we need to be free. In their minds, they were already free, but Jesus was speaking about sin. Those who continued in sin were slaves to sin. And the words of Jesus, they would cause them to reflect on their own lives and saying, am I in sin? Am I giving sin rule in my life? Now, a slave in a household, that was a foreigner. That's someone that did not receive the inheritance like a son. The ones the Son of God Jesus Christ makes free are free indeed once and for all. We've been freed from the penalty, from the power of sin. We can say no to sin. We can uh, resist the devil and he will flee. What a blessing. You know the gospel, believer. Are you walking in it? You say you're a disciple of Jesus. Are you able to hold your tongue? Have you put a bridle on that thing? where you say, hold on, I don't have to say anything here, or let's go in this direction. Let's speak words of humility and meekness, kindness. When you look into the mirror of God's word, do you see your need to be born again, to repent with meekness to receive his word, that you haven't been in that posture? Your heart has not been broken by your sin and by your need to receive it. Well, today is the day. to receive that word, to walk in that word. And we do so not to get what we want, not just to have victory, but to give God the glory he is worthy to receive. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. How do you know you love Jesus? By keeping his commandments, by abiding in his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for just the power of the gospel to save and change us, that it's not just the belief of doctrine or having read the Bible that imparts some sort of special blessing, but it's in knowing you. It's in walking in your ways. It's in enduring temptation. It's in walking by faith and receiving your love and grace and showing it to others. And I pray we'd be those, Lord, who are bridling our tongues, who are uh, not giving place to the devil through anger, thinking that by us being angry, it produces the righteousness of God. But, Lord, that we lay aside that overflow of wickedness, that we admit, yeah, that's my problem, that I am a wicked person and I need salvation. I need Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you would continue to show this Uh, to each one of us, that you would show us this sermon when it concludes it's not done because there's a lot you want to do in and through each one of us to show yourself strong on our behalf and to reveal your love through us to the world. And I pray we would be changed, we would be made new, and you would be glorified for it, Lord. It was not because we're wise or pious or, or so great, but it's because you're great and you are good and we worship and praise you In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.